You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. And welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law, and with me, my co-host, Paul Doroshenko. Good to be with you, Kyla. I haven't not really. I've barely seen you this week. Yeah, <laughs> you're not really with me because uh, you're uh, you're hiding. Yes. Well, I've got a uh, COVID outbreak in my household, um, and fifty uh, percent of the fifty uh, percent of the occupants have COVID. I'm not one of them to date, but I was speaking to an adjudicator today um, from the superintendent of motor vehicles who has COVID right now, and uh, yeah, and and uh, similar situation. And her husband got it five days after her, despite the fact they lived together. So I know in previous times. Uh, when people got it, I know where you can reasonably figure out where you got it. Like when I got it, I showed symptoms the following day. Mm-hmm. Um, last time, here I am, days in, testing myself, and um, maybe I've got immunity right now. Who knows? But we're not uh, in this. We're not. You and I aren't taking that risk. No, I can't. I have to go to Florida. Yeah, I know. I'm <laughs> uh, very, very jealous of you going to Florida. Um, yeah, well, you get to go somewhere warm and have a lovely time with a bunch of wonderful people. I'll be uh, sitting here waiting for the moment that I show COVID symptoms. And uh, in the meantime, I guess, uh, cooking meals for those in the family that I have no choice but to cook what feels like prison food at this point. So, you know, living in a, a household, 50% of the people, there's four people there, 50% have COVID. So those people are basically locked in rooms, like in prison, and uh, I'm on the other end of it, feeling like a prison guard, and it's not pleasant. Well, I mean, you're in your house that you live in with your family that presumably you like because you made them. Um, so for the, I, for, the, for the most part, it's hard to be sympathetic <laughs> when I had COVID myself three times alone only allowed to cook for myself, only fending for myself. I had to drive myself to the hospital when I could barely breathe, when I had a heart rate of 140 one time because I was all alone. So, Well, the first time you had it, everybody was locked down and nobody could come out and assist you. And we did have food delivered to you. We had Darren delivering you pepper, I remember, because you couldn't taste anything. That was before it was known that that was a symptom. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, second time you were a pro and ordering your food with Uber Eats and, and, uh, DoorDash or whatever the heck they've got. Um, and, uh, third time, I think you were just like a total expert on it. Yeah. Except Plus, for who fact- wants to get in a car to drive you there? You know, it's the, point. it's the point of like a feeling like you have this serious illness that's killing people all over and you could die in your sleep totally alone. And also like, you know, when you're sick and you, and there's no one, well, you don't know what it's like when you're sick and there's no one to look after you and nobody cares about you and you feel sad and alone and you feel like you're worthless. So. Well, I have had that, especially when I was single. Um, and, um, I will tell you that we did, uh, we did send you care packages, but you know, no, I understand your feelings. 
I mean, lots of people have gone through that with COVID, I guess. So, yeah, I was thinking there was somebody else, uh, one of our assistants, who uh, didn't have COVID. We had two people, actually, in the office who their roommates had COVID. And they managed to not get it. And that was early on pre-vaccinations. So it's a strange illness, I'm telling you. Yeah. And it's still out there in the community. No fun. No fun for you. No fun for anybody. Yeah. Well, anyway, I'm just saying I'm not that sympathetic for you being healthy and still able to go out and do things. Well, I'm worried that I'm going to be, you know, I'm still isolating, right, as best I can. I'm in the office right now, but I'm locked in my office with a separate entrance. And you're not here. And here we are recording the podcast. Mm -hmm. So let's get on the podcast because there's a lot to talk about this week. We we, yes. we we had a debate about all of different things that we couldn't talk about because we won't have enough time. We better get on the things that we do have time to talk about. Yes. So the biggest thing, the news of the day today, as timely as it can uh, be, you heard it here first on the podcast. Uh, I have not read all 2000 pages, but <laughs> the Emergencies Act Inquiries final report has been released. Um and this is, uh, of course, about the invocation of the Emergencies Act to deal with the situation of the occupation of Ottawa by the quote-unquote Freedom Convoy and uh, all the honking and the protests and the trucks. Um, and not and just Ottawa, blocking uh, border crossings in two locations in Ontario and Alberta Yeah, with but vehicles. The, but so what's important to know is that this was a justified use of the Emergencies Act. Yeah. Um, and, uh, of course, you know, the Conservatives came out beforehand saying they should, the government should be invoking the Emergencies Act after they initially supported the protesters in Ottawa and a lot of Conservatives supported the protesters at other locations, particularly Coots, Alberta, um, then they switched gears and said that the government should invoke the Emergencies Act very quickly. And then when it was invoked, they said that it was it shouldn't have been invoked or that it was too late. And then afterward, when everything was over, of course, everybody said, oh, they didn't have the authority. It wasn't necessary. They had so many other options available to them. Um, but this is really a driving law story because this is uh, the first time we have seen big rigs used in quite this way to block roads. Yes. And so the report was written by um, Justice Rouleau of the Ontario Court of Appeal. Um, he determined that there is a high threshold to invoke the Emergencies Act, but that it was met because of the ongoing disruptions to daily life, the reports of harassment, the potential for life-threatening violence, the calls to overthrow the government, which still make me laugh. Um, and Well, it makes people laugh, but I mean, I'm sorry, I, I keep going and I'll address that in a minute. And the damage to both the economy and the reputation. And I thought the reputational damage component of of relying on it like the national reputational damage was interesting because last year while the freedom convoy was going on i was at the same conference in florida that i i'm going to this year and it was all over the tv 
on every news channel, Canada's occupation by the Freedom Convoy. Well, and there was other Freedom Convoys going on around the world um, in in Europe and an attempted one in the U.S. Yeah, sorry, what were you going to say? I forget what your second point was there. Oh, I do remember. So um, you think about George Santos right now. And, uh, you know, the guy's just fundamentally dishonest and you can make a lot of jokes about him. Um, and similarly with Trump, you, you know, you look at him and you say to yourself, the guy's incompetent and it's, it's, it's to the point of being funny, but you know, then they end up in a position of, of, of power or they actually have some sort of influence. And the, the funny thing with this, these convoy people is that they're just so ridiculous that none of us could take them seriously. But then here they are threatening the public right and so you have to take them seriously mm-hmm. um you know and and it's an easy thing an easy mistake to make to as you commented look at their seditionist motivations and laugh at them and mm-hmm. find them funny <clears throat> but remember just because they are halfwits um doesn't mean that that this is not an actual threat. And so, you know, I'm, I'm glad to see that that was a component of it. I haven't read it yet, obviously. I think the initial one I downloaded here, the first introduction part was 270 pages. So there's there's work to do mm-hmm. reading it, reading well, it. But but I, I don't think it's I don't think we can take lightly. And I, you know, I've held this position from the beginning. Their claims to want to overthrow the government just because they are. Are, are, are incompetent people. Yeah, but I mean, they were asking levels of the government to meet with them to to do things to overthrow the government. Like, didn't they write a letter to the Senate asking the Senate to declare, like, that Parliament was invalid? Sure, then the Governor General. Yeah. Um, and, you know... Disabilities. <clears throat> I mean, Sometimes we take it overly seriously, I guess, and sometimes we don't take it seriously enough. You you think back to those, uh, the alleged terrorists who were charged with uh, uh, planning to set off bombs in, in uh, pressure cookers at the Legislative Assembly in British Columbia. That was a ridiculous, ridiculous call by the RCMP of, in assessing a, a threat. It was a non-existent threat that they tried to turn into a threat for people who could never do it. But then you've got these people who show up in Ottawa, block all the streets, are hauling in containers of diesel and gasoline, purportedly have weapons in their vehicles. And, you know, what's that? Money donated from overseas. Sure. Overseas financed, Um, you know, and, we as Canadians have trouble taking them seriously. I had trouble taking them seriously, obviously. And it looks like the police didn't take them seriously. Um, And, and this was the next point. I'll let you finish your thought. Well, the point is that, that it's a funny thing in the way that we think these days, I guess, maybe just the level of cynicism that we have, maybe we've become callous to it. uh, But we don't seem to have a good consensus on what is a threat, particularly when we are looking at people who are hard to take seriously to start with. 
Yeah, I mean, and I think that was that does lead into the second point, the big point that you can take from the Emergencies Act inquiry, which was that this was not a good example of our system of federalism. Um, Justice Rouleau <laughs> characterized uh, the um, the sort of happenings as a failure of federalism because people didn't like like cooperate and work together to deal with the problem. Like Doug Ford was like, fuck this shit. <laughs> As we all remember, <clears throat> the Ontario, uh, the OPP didn't do anything. Um, the, you know, the parliamentary police were saying that they could only do things on the parliamentary grounds. Um, the RCMP were, were saying it's a municipal problem. Um, so the military was like, we can't come in until, you know, until all other things have been sort of dealt with or tried and failed. And in the end, it was essentially every level of government and every sort of branch of law enforcement refusing to work together to go, all of us think that this is a problem. All of us are concerned about the potential for harm and the danger that this is posing and the disruption and everything, but none of us are willing to work together to stop it. Yeah, I mean, and you can see that for sure. That was the discussion even at the time. Um, but the interesting thing to me is that, yes, it is a fail of failure of federalism, but it's a failure of federalism due to ideology. Like, it's, it was ideological differences like the, the Ontario government, conservative government, um, always walking the line of wanting to appease the um, the extreme uh, COVID deniers, uh, you know, the, the federal wanting to sort of fan the flames of people who just hate the federal liberals um, because they, you know, and, and, and so you know, for that reason, they don't want to get in. You and I know that there are police officers who just resent the government. And we know that there's police officers who seem to not be able to control their feelings with respect to their political views. Um, and we have permitted in this country in the last few years, people to drive around with fuck Trudeau flags and things like that. Um, it's it's a failure due to ideology, as far as I can tell. I think in another time, in another era, <clears throat> people would recognize their duty and See, deal with it. I don't know that I agree with you. I don't know that I agree with you, <clears throat> first of all, that Ontario um, and the Ford government was doing everything it could to not have to do anything about like COVID. Because they had some of the worst lockdowns in Canada, in Ontario. And secondly... Um, I, I don't know that you can say that allowing people to drive around with fuck Trudeau flags is somehow of a failure by letting ideology, you know, succeed. That's freedom of expression. And fuck Trudeau is not violent. It's a, a political opinion. It's protected speech in this country. It's not discriminatory or, 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 um, other than politically divisive, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't bring down anybody. I, I doesn't bring down anybody. Well, well Trudeau, I mean, sorry, if you're <clears throat> you have to have thick enough skin to not mind if somebody says, fuck you. Uh, I'm sorry. 
Um, I, I just think it's the crude attack and the and the sort of where we've gone with what is considered acceptable political uh, expression. And there was a time when we would not do that. It would have been impolite. And when some guy years ago had fuck Harper written on the back window of his vehicle, he was pulled over by the police and it, that was wrong. I, I, I accept it. You know, he was entitled to do it. But that was sort of the the first time that we had seen that. And this is not political discussion. Buck Trudeau is not expressing any anything that's a reasonable uh, expression of a political viewpoint. Well, then here's <clears throat> the third point. In fact, Trudeau gets a little bit of heat from Justice Rouleau in the report because he made some comments. You know, first he he created this vaccine mandate that um, ultimately he extended, I mean, he, but the government extended to cross-border workers, which was part of, you know, what the truckers were upset about. Um, and he made a comment that there was only a small fringe minority of people opposed to COVID-related restrictions. Not untrue in the sense that even though there was this big occupation, it really was a small fringe minority of people who just happened to get together in a really organized way. Um, but With foreign financing. Yeah, but Justice Rouleau says that that comment, the quote is, served to energize the protesters, hardening their resolve, and further embittering them toward government authorities. Well, here's the thing. They were a small fringe, um, and I prefer that the government is honest and just calls them out as a small fringe. It uh, doesn't matter what Trudeau says. People will try and spin it. And when I listen to him talk, you know, again, this is me. I'm sympathetic to his situation. Um, but when I listen to him talk, what I hear is a very reasonable guy saying very reasonable things. And I, you know, personally, I go a lot further when it comes to, you know, this fringe group. But I think he was right. But does that does that somehow excuse it? I don't think Trudeau's getting uh, getting uh, uh, being criticized here. Uh, by the commissioner for that. I think it's a, you know, not unreasonable comment for him to have made. Right. However, the, the report does find that, and and he, Trudeau has since the report come out, even acknowledged this, that maybe he could have been a little bit more judicious in how he characterized those people. Um, and that some of the messaging that came from politicians, public officials, officials, and even to some extent media organizations was not balanced enough and didn't draw a clear enough distinction between people who were protesting peacefully and those who were not. Yeah, well, good luck getting balance anywhere in politicians and in media. I mean, they're all... They, in they this podcast? <laughs> in this podcast. Uh, there's There's always ideology, which brings me back to the you know, the point that I was making before, ideology influenced how things proceeded. Ideology influenced people's perspective on where they were going to be on it. Um, ideology influenced the police. And that is a concern to me. You have to do your best to be detached. And I think that there's times that I have to make like 
you know, you every lawyer has to make decisions on a day-to-day basis for their clients and in their existence. And we are thrust in a position where often we have to make what really is an almost quasi-judicial decision where you have to be very reasonable and you have to say, look, I'm I'm stepping out of my bias here and just applying the law. And police need to do that. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I still don't agree with you on the ideology thing, um, but I would agree with you that, you know, there does need to be some stepping outside your bias because as soon as, <laughs> as soon as this report comes out and Trudeau gets a little bit of blame for maybe not being so careful with his words, um, the, uh, the report, uh, sorry, the, the Pierre Polyev, who we know was like at the protests and, you know, actively encouraging and participating a lot of the protesters goes ahead and says, this is all, this is all Trudeau's fault. None of this would have happened if if it weren't for Trudeau. Well, and again, like politicians who, who can only speak in forms of ideology lose credibility so quickly. This guy lost credibility so quickly, like he, he was unwilling to come to the debates because he was scared. Um, and now all he can do is fling this rubbish. It just undermines his credibility. And again, this is, as I said, not something we would have seen two decades ago. It would have been a, a more balanced approach by, by you know, the conservatives are, are an extremist group in my mind now. Um, and, uh, you know, I didn't think that, uh, I didn't think Trudeau's comments were, were extreme. And I think everything else he's done, he's tried to be very balanced about it. But again, you know, there's no agreement anymore. No, no, there's not. But, um, at the end of the report, there were 56 recommendations made, um, which is, uh, a lot of recommendations. <laughs> we don't actually have like the full text of the report um available to the public yet. I think it's still in media lockup. Um, no, no, I found it on the website. Oh, okay, because I've been only yeah. been to read summaries. So what are the recommendations, Paul? Well, I haven't read all the recommendations. I stop at number 43, which was taser these people next time they start honking their horns. Uh, no, I don't think that's in the recommendations. I think no, okay, that's uh, that's where it cut off anyway for me. Yeah, lots of them have to do with um, the sort of complexities of having four different police services um, dealing with one location, um, the lack of the uh, lack of cohesion in those um, those policing services that um, they should look at making changes to the division of responsibilities for policing and security in Ottawa. Um, And also establish an office that is in charge of coordinating large major national events. um, So the country is prepared for things like this, if they ever happen again. God, were we prepared. (laughs) And Ontario should have a major event management coordinator. You know, it's funny that they, that you say that though, that they, that we weren't prepared because like, sitting here in bc watching it, it part of me was was wondering you know what where 
is the government on getting the injunctions. We've had protests in BC, large protests, sometimes protests that have been alleged to cause damage, blocking roads. Like that's like a Friday afternoon every summer in BC is a big, you know, interrupty protest. And we've always had mechanisms through the court injunctions and the government's been very quick to go deal with it, to send the RCMP in. There is, there are offices in BC that are responsible for dealing with this. There are designated crown responsible for dealing with prosecutions of, of that. It's almost like BC could be a model for Ontario for what they should be doing if they need to deal with things like this in the future. Well, we'll see if it's adopted as a model because the recommendation section is 343 pages. Oh, well, there you go. See, I wouldn't have been able to read it in time for the podcast preparation anyway. So there you are. Online or as best as I can do. I haven't found Taser in there yet, but I'm looking for it. Yeah, I don't think you're going to find it. Mm. Yeah. Um, taser them all somehow not a recommendation no probably uh, not okay so moving on to another issue that has been we've talked about before on the podcast which is the situation with the Vancouver police who are under investigation the police officers who are currently under investigation as a result of an allegation that some police officers may have obstructed an investigation into impaired driving following a collision. More news coming out. Yes. So uh, Catherine Urquhart, who is uh, an excellent uh, at uncovering this type of stuff, um, determined that uh, the um, there is a criminal investigation into obstruction of justice and that the investigation has been taken over by Metro Vancouver Transit Police. Because if you recall, the incident happened in Burnaby. So originally it was Burnaby RCMP investigating, but now they've brought in a third police force to carry out this aspect of the investigation. There's going to be a bunch of professional standards investigations underway as well, because what appears to have happened um, is there was a collision and it was an error by the officer committed some sort of infraction that led to the collision mm-hmm. um, and police were called to attend and then Vancouver and it was in Burnaby and right on the border of Burnaby is Vancouver and police were called to attend and Vancouver police officers showed up there and it looks like the Vancouver police officers were trying to do the worst thing you could do which is to try and protect one of their own from an investigation um, now what happens if a Vancouver police officer has an accident in Vancouver? Uh, that would suggest to you that the method that they use is that they have impunity and are safe from being investigated so long as they do it in Vancouver. And if they do it in Burnaby, Vancouver police officers show up to try and protect them. And it really gives the suggestion that um, that the police are biased, that the police don't enforce the law against their own. Uh, and uh, really makes it feel like you live in a city that's uh, policed by thugs rather than police officers. I know you hate that phrase, but your term. But um, that's where we are now. But now it's an investigation. And the next step is who investigates the police? The Coast Guard? <laughs> Wouldn't that be funny? Um, <laughs> no, 
not not the Coast Guard. So what normally happens in these situations is you would get an outside police agency to investigate. And the reason that you get the outside police agency to investigate is so it's like not colleagues investigating colleagues where, you know, you're there, your coworker or your pal. So they don't want you to previous relationship with them, somebody you deal with on a day-to-day basis, uh, some sort of uh, not even uh, bias, but again, a perception of bias. Yep. But (laughs) there is an interesting issue with it being the transit police specifically. So the transit police are the ones who have been called in to investigate. Yes. And what a lot of people probably don't know is that the transit police is made up by a significant number of members who were former Vancouver police officers who retired and then went to transit police to work during their retirement. So it's an interesting thing. Of course, we have uh, different police forces. We have like the CN police are peace officers in BC and they do traffic enforcement. (laughs) Um, We've got transit police who are employed by BC Transit. Uh, Originally, the intention was just security, but they also do traffic enforcement and other investigations. And they're all usually, often many of them are experienced. They they hire junior officers, but a lot of them are experienced officers who've retired from somewhere else. But the point of getting getting an outside police force to investigate is for that perception of perception and actual potential for bias. And by using the transit police, that doesn't really deal with that aspect. I don't know how I'd feel if I was a Burnaby police officer who was involved in this to find out that the investigation is being conducted by an organization that's largely made up of retired Vancouver police officers. Um. Yeah, I mean, I agree to some extent, and my my reasons for agreeing are not that I agree that they can't conduct an independent investigation. In fact, most of the people I know that have gone from VPD, retired, and then gone to transit are people who are like blue-blooded cops, and they're not going to let a cop off the hook because they're about you know, law and order and making, and especially former traffic members who are going to investigate um, issues covering up impaired driving seriously. I can think of some names of people who are there right now that I know would not be persuaded by that. But I do agree with you that it's an optics problem. I think it's an optics problem, not just publicly, but I think it's an optics problem for um, when when viewed from the perspective of a Burnaby police officer, yes. Um, so I, you know, I, I again, I'm not, I'm not questioning the integrity broadly of a police force. Um, I have concerns about it. I like you, you know, know a number of these officers who have moved on to there, and they may not be there, but you know, over the course of the decades I've been doing this, um. I've dealt with a lot of Vancouver police officers and the reasons they were hired by the transit police was because they were excellent police officers. Having said that, you know, they're still humans. Uh, and it's the reason we go outside of the 
police force to investigate something that like this is for the perception and the possibility. So you're thinking there, like, they've got so many different options, right? You go to New Westminster, you could get the Abbotsford police to investigate. You know, you really want to make sure that you're approaching it fairly. You could give it to the Nelson police. You know, we have all of these police forces for other jurisdictions who are fully capable of investigating it and who don't have a pro or or con VPD or RCMP perspective. Yes. Um, I just wonder how that decision was made here. <laughs> uh, the transit police would be the ones investigating it. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm going to assume that the members of the transit police who are investigating, investigating it are not former VPD officers. Well, that could be, that could be too. Um, I so that I, would be a reasonable restriction. I guess we will see. Um, you know, I suppose the only, <laughs> the, uh, you know, they're all responding to each other's calls, right? These officers who are on transit police, when they need backup, you know, they they put it out and VPD shows up or they put it out and Burnaby RCMP shows up. So, yeah, we will see. We will see. But now we will take a break and see what Eric McGracken has to tell us about this week in the McGracken Moment. Ladies and gentlemen, let loose the law and justice Kraken Eric McGracken! Welcome to this week's McGracken Moment. Uh, Last week, I talked about how the CRT, the Civil Resolution Tribunal, was found constitutional to decide minor injury claims. Today, I want to talk about the litigation people are facing if they have a minor injury claim. So right now, even though we're in a no-fault system, the law says that if you're injured in a car crash and you had the right to sue, or if you continue to have the very limited right to sue, most injuries are called minor injuries. And here's how it works. There's, there's still a lot of complexity in the landscape. So if you are injured and you sue, you could start in the BC Supreme Court. Defense counsel can then allege your injuries are minor, even if they're not. And if they follow through with that pleading, they could bring an application to stay your action, and all things being equal, a BC Supreme Court judge will stay your action, redirect it to the Civil Resolution Tribunal. You have to file there very quickly afterwards. And here's how it works. It's complicated. The Resolution Tribunal will then decide if your injury is minor or not. And if it's not, you could go right back to BC Supreme Court. If they say it's minor, you could then apply for permission to go back to BC Supreme Court on the basis that the totality of your claim for pain and suffering and everything else combined will be in the will be above the CRT's financial jurisdiction. 
And if you, if you persuade them on a pretty high standard, you could then get a permission slip to go back to BC Supreme Court. If you don't, then the CRT will adjudicate your fate. So there's a whole bunch of cases in this legal limbo right now, and they're about to uh, you know, start going through this whole process. Now, here's where it's still very complicated. Whether the minor injury law itself is constitutional, whether it is in violation of Section 15 of the Charter, that's yet to be decided. So even with all of this uh, complicated legal structure, we still don't know if the minor injury law itself is constitutional. So folks, after all these years, we still have a whole lot of legal uncertainty over minor injury claims. Thank you. Thank you, Eric, again, for uh, enlightening, albeit depressing, all of us about our, our rights or lack thereof when dealing with ICBC and uh, and civil claims. We appreciate your contribution every week. And of course, if you have an ICBC civil litigation issue, uh, definitely reach out to Eric um, because uh, he is the oracle. Paul? Eric. Kyla? <laughs> Who am I? Sorry. <laughs> I was just I was just looking at it. I was I'm always taken aback by Eric. Um and thinking about rights. Um I think it's probably time for the ridiculous driver of the week. The week, the week, the week, the week. The reviews are in. This book has been a lifesaver. If you haven't bought a copy yet, I can't recommend it enough. Thanks to the pinpoint method, I feel like I now have concrete strategies I can employ for difficult situations. Published by LexisNexis, cross-examination the pinpoint method is an essential addition to your bookshelf. Order now. And this week is a hilarious story that I saw in the Daily Hive. It was published on Monday this week. Um, you have to go to the story. I will give you the headline. You can Google Daily Hive. Police pull over Canadian driver in car, completely overflowing with beer cans. This is one of those stories that you actually have to see it to appreciate it. The the vehicle, it looks like some type of a, a pickup truck. Um, the vehicle was pulled over in Ontario um, as part of a an impaired driving investigation in um, like a roadblock. And it is piled from floor to the top of the dash in the front cabin of the truck, all on top of the car seat with bush beer cans empty. Some are crushed. Mm -hmm. Some are, you know, been deformed. Many of them look like they could have been there for a long time. Um, we've had, uh, clients who were investigated who had cans and bottles in their car, taking them to the bottle depot. Um, but this just looks like just <laughs> stores all his cans there right in the passenger compartment of his, well, it's of his vehicle. When you finish one, throw it over to the passenger compartment. It's like the cans that tend to accumulate behind my passenger seat when I'm driving, but they're all pop cans, not beer. Diet Pepsi. Um, yeah, this was uh, this was uh, pretty extreme and raised a bunch of interesting issues, actually. Um, 
there's a case we'll have to talk about at some point that was uh, just came out from the uh, court in Ontario where an individual was drinking from a can in their vehicle, and the court came to the conclusion that they couldn't police couldn't rely on the uh, proof screening device sample as a result. So what do you do when the guy's got so many cans in there that, like, can you take a test right then? Do you have to wait 15 minutes um, when there's a the entire passenger compartment of the vehicle is filled with empty alcohol containers? Six, 61-year-old driver makes me think that maybe it's that guy that they interviewed who was like, it's not reasonable to only have two drinks a week. Oh, no, that guy was younger than that. He was in his 40s. That's the that's the Canadian heritage moment one. Uh, yeah. yeah. I just uh I just really like love this photo. Um I feel like if I was a police officer, I'd be a little stymied. Like you're right. Do I wait? Am I detecting an odor of liquor from this guy's breath or just everywhere? Uh do I do a mandatory demand or should I do a suspicion demand? I feel like it might actually be not a bad defense to just drive around with that many um empty beers in your car well that's the thing like from the perspective of enforcement and dealing with it you know it is this an intention to thwart an investigation by having so many cans in there the okay. police are unsure whether or not they can take a reliable sample using an approved screening device he was ultimately arrested for impaired operation he also had eight driving suspensions um and apparently there was some evidence that he was in possession of some stolen property and received a number of charges under the highway traffic act which the opp did not detail but i think are probably um for open containers uh in addition to i would suspect vehicle defects because if you have that many containers in your car yeah maybe they were trophies Maybe. Demonstrating how much he could drink and still operate his motor vehicle. Yep. Not a good plan. Yep, not a good plan. Or well, any, any event. That's our podcast. There you go. If happy you, Friday. Yeah, happy Friday. If you need to reach us related to a driving law issue, you can find us online at VancouverCriminalLaw.com. Or give us a call at 604-685-8889 and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law.